0: Welcome to the State of the Market podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of ThinkTrading.com with Tim Price of PriceValuePartners.com. Together, we welcome Barry Norris of Hogwarts Capital. It's a Halloween session.
1: Shall we three meet again, in thunder, lightning, or in rain? When the hurly-burly's done, when the battle
0: lost and won, that will be ever set the sun. I sounded like Borat.
1: (laughs) Very
0: nice. Very nice. It's very, I very nice. Yaksha <laughs> <The action> Mash. <laughs> <laughs> as Macbeth, I can't believe it.
1: <laughs> this all has to stay, by the way. <laughs>
0: it's comedy gold. I, I didn't realise you was you were going to give such a performance and that just threw me.
1: <laughs> how, how long have you known me, Paul?
0: How long what? Sorry, Tom, Tim.
1: <laughs> how long have you known me? Well, not very long by the sound of it, uh, Mike.
0: <laughs> it's Sunday morning. We haven't been drinking, I promise. It's, I promise. Well,
1: speak, speak yeah. For yourself. Oh, yeah,
0: Go. indeed.: Well, yeah.
1: Barry, welcome
2: to the show.
0: Barry, tell us how you got involved in the financial markets. What was your journey?
2: Yeah, so I trained as a, as a Cambridge historian, and then I got fed up with people asking me whether I wanted to be a history teacher, uh, and this was uh, sort of late 90s, and I decided I wanted to be a fund manager. Uh, so I started uh, at Bailey Gifford in Edinburgh. Uh, I then uh, went on to uh, run uh, a European equity fund at Neptune, and that was very successful. And uh, by the age of 31, I uh, managed to set up my own company, Argonaut Capital, which I've been doing for the last 15 years. First as a uh, long-only European equity manager and uh, subsequently as a, as a global long-short uh, hedge fund manager.
0: Fantastic. Do you find that um, your study of history helps you in your analysis of the financial markets?
2: Uh, I, think, I, 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 th- I think there's a surprising number of historians that have gone, o- gone on to be fund managers, uh, more than you would think. Um, uh, and um, I think um, you know, one of the things that, that, that history is, is good at is helping you organize your arguments. And another, I think, is, is actually seeing um, how historical events have unfolded and explanations of those events, which um, sort of the old way of writing history was that they were all uh, caused by the the sort of the the ideas and the actions of great men. Uh, whilst I'm quite sympathetic to that, if I were to go back and study history again professionally, knowing what I know about the, the stock market, I would rather think that the economic motivation might be higher up the list in how historical events unfold. Do you think
1: if you'd had your time again, you'd also consider, I mean, I know these are all hypotheticals, but if you had your time again, you'd also consider, if you knew that your end point was going to be financial markets and investing, you'd have studied psychology?
2: <laughs> um, no. <laughs> what, why not? Just out of interest? uh, uh, uh I don't want to be rude about... Um, oh, go on. It's a fa- It's a family show. But, you know, I think there are too many subjects nowadays to study at university. And frankly, the days in which you could study either classics or, or maths um, and that was your option were probably better.
0: That's interesting. That's, that's really interesting. So you think the... So we've gone too far down the beha- behavioural economics route. And we, we're not we're not looking at the past for a gu- as a guide to the future anymore.
2: Um, well, I've certainly noticed in financial markets how how over the last decade or so you've seen this incredible push towards, uh, sort of people trying to be experts in a in a in a small field, and um, I've always sort of considered myself as a fund manager, as a as an armchair everything in that, you know, I've never worked in any of the industries that I've invested in. Um, you know, my, my one of the first books I ever read on investing was Jim Slater's The Zulu Principle, where it's called The Zulu Principle because his wife, before they went on holiday in South Africa, spent, um, you know, a few weeks reading everything she possibly could on the Zulus. And by the time they got to South Africa, she was a world expert. And that is how I, as a generalist fund manager, uh, research Um, uh, uh, often, uh, for example, this year, I knew I didn't even know what an epidemiologist was at the start of the year. Um, But in March and April, I I, I spent almost every waking hour um, researching epidemiology and and coronaviruses and um, felt You know, able to speak about it with some degree of um, some degree of expertise, uh, you know, after after a few weeks. And I think that that skill of the generalist in being able to dip in and out of things, and the greater perspective that comes from being a generalist, has been incredibly important, particularly this year. And I would say, um, you know, if I look at the financial markets. In general, and what people are are asked to do, uh, uh, there's a lot of spurious accru- accuracy, which can often be very far from the truth. And 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 this year, as a whole, obviously, if any year was to remind you about the importance of perspective and judgment, it's this year. Um, and um, you know, certainly, we're all we're all scratching scratching our heads here uh just trying to work out just you know how uh we're we're in lockdown again uh with a virus that has killed 45,000 uh people in the UK sadly but um you know we know that 20,000 people die of flu every year and 165,000 uh die of cancer and and you know a covid death now seems to be worth sort of 10 times any other death um, and you know the the, the negative impact on um, you know the health and well-being of the population from 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 non-COVID courses, the impact uh, on the economy, the fact that we'll be paying for this uh, for decades, and of course just the general corrosive effect on democracy and civil civil liberties. And you know, as a historian. I can tell you that, that 2020 people will look back on 2020, scratching their heads and thinking there was this rather unremarkable coronavirus, where you saw this remarkably strange reaction to it, and um, it will be one of those historical questions, kind of like the 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 strange death of Liberal England, or or even the outbreak of World War One, which I compared. The, the response to coronavirus, too, in terms of policy error. You know how how was it that an Austrian archduke was shot by a, a Bosnian in Serbia, and that led to to uh, this World War One, where millions of people died, and and and, and frankly, you know, if, if you believe a lot of the the, the the history, led inevitably to World War II as well. And um, you know, people have have struggled to explain that one, and I think they're going to struggle to explain. Um, two thousand and twenty, in the response to the coronavirus
1: Cockerpool up or conspiracy
2: um, well, I think I think it's a mix of the two, isn't it? Um, uh, I mean we may we may never know, but but we all we
1: can do is speculate
2: yeah, so so you know, for example, when we are when we think a stock a stock is a fraud on the stock market. As we thought, you know, Wirecard was, and NMC Healthcare was, and Steinhoff was. We don't. We when we say that, we don't know 100%. But you know, 99% where is is a pretty high level of probability. And unless you're an insider, unless you were in the room when it happens, you, you or, or you know somebody who was in the room when it happens, uh, it, it's pretty difficult to, to prove a conspiracy in a way that would stand up in court but you know financial markets work on on probabilities and if you look at who benefits from all of this the chinese communist party this time last year were presiding over an economy which was you know looking a bit shaky in a in a trade war with a, a president that was almost certain to be reelected uh, there were daily protests in hong kong about democracy and you've got this the biggest kleptocracy the world has ever seen, the most powerful kleptocracy the world has ever seen in terms of the the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, uh, And look at them now. They must be rubbing their hands with glee uh, in that not only do they seem to have an economy uh, which which is growing again, they seem to apparently have a society that doesn't have any COVID. And they have Western society on its knees looking at china thinking haven't hasn't this dictatorship done a great job and shouldn't we be more like them uh, uh, and i find that very troubling indeed and of course yeah and, but of course you know the 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 problem is if that's the conspiracy the cock up has been the witless policy response um the the the, the ease of which um, western societies have given up um, hard, you know, hard fought for civil liberties, um, through through you know general just fear and 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 and, and just witless behaviour, and um, yeah, it's obviously become very political as well, and that you know the the, the political discourse, um, sadly, uh, is is now that you know only the state can save us from this this uh, this deadly disease that is only deadly in a small fraction of one percent of the population and is being obviously used as a way that 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 there's a big agenda in western society clearly under all of this where all of the people who believe in the power of the state have latched on to the coronavirus as uh with a confirmatory bias of only the state can solve the problem of 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 coronavirus and therefore we need a bigger state and ultimately we all need to end up working for the state and we all should believe everything the state tells us
1: have you ever played sorry to interrupt have you ever played the computer game um, civilization uh
2: i know of it i can't say i I play it myself. It's it's a it's a gigantic
1: time sink, um, but it, it is. It, I think it's one of the most excellent tools to educate kids about how the world works, about the history of science, material progress, all of these things. But the, the, one of the the versions I've got has uh, some cheesy. I'm a big fan of cheesy quotes, and there's a, a quote from, and it's a voice by Leonard Nimoy, Mr. Spock, and it's. The bureaucracy is expanding to meet the needs of the expanding bureaucracy.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, um, yeah, I'm I'm a bit of a call of duty man myself, Tim, but uh, I'll look out for that one. So, in your analysis, you've done
0: some analysis, um, obviously, of the virus, and we're hearing all sorts of different things and trying to make sense of of all that information. What what, what insights have you? found that you don't think are being generally discussed in the ma- mainstream media?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I started writing about this in March and, and April and, 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 you know, I think one of the things that I find that I have an instinct for is I have a pretty well-honed bullshit antennae, Um, and yeah, I even remember back to when I was at school that, you know, I was, you know pretty near the t- top of the class of most subjects but I wouldn't say I was the best behaved boy in the school because basically if the teacher got us doing something that I thought was rubbish I'd tell them that and that probably um, that probably that 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 sort of character trait um, was was meant that I was probably pretty bad as an imp- a junior employee anywhere as well so I ended up setting my own company up at, uh, uh, at 31. Probably because nobody would employ me, um, and um, uh, and that that character trait, if you like, has been very helpful in identifying stock market frauds and companies that just pump up uh, their own share price and then and then don't deliver. And I certainly felt in March and April we are being told something here by the media uh, that seems just. Ridiculous in terms of the propaganda versus versus the truth, and you know pretty much all year. Whenever I've actually been banned from watching the news on mainstream media because I just sort of start shouting at the television like a, a rabid dog, uh, uh, frothing at the mouth, and um, uh, and and I started to write about you know, uh, firstly obviously understanding what we had with COVID, which is a disease which. Uh, it is, is uh, obviously pretty dangerous for 1% of the population, but for 99% of the population, uh, it, 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 it frankly uh, it is no more dangerous than, than about a bout of flu. And, and I really objected to the fact that the government and the mainstream media were trying to tell us something different. And then, of course, we had the, 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 just this crazy overreaction in terms of the lockdown, which obviously another one's been announced overnight. And the big question from that for me is, how difficult is it to shield the 1% and get the 99% to carry on with their lives normally? And nobody seems to either ask that question or be able to answer it. And then more recently, uh, I've, I've started to, 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 well, started to write about vaccines because, you know, the, 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 the sort of catechism that you, you hear is, Oh, you know, just obey the rules and we'll have a vaccine and everything will be all right. Um, and again, um, you know, that's just complete nonsense. Um, you know, there's never been a vaccine for coronaviruses, uh, flu, uh, sorry, and there has been a vaccine that's been 100% effective. And there is this kind of assumption that when we get a vaccine, it will be like a holiday, Hollywood movie and everything will be fine uh, almost overnight and we'll return to normal. And, and certainly, you know, the research that I've done on the vaccine companies, and we can go into that in, in, in more detail. Um, but, you know, in general, the primary endpoint of the vaccine trials is to have a group of people uh, on the placebo, a group of people that are vaccinated, and just compare the number of symptomatic infections. And the people in the trials are all pretty much healthy adults. So they're in the 99%. Uh, And therefore, even if you get a vaccine that is efficacious, let's say it's 50% efficacious, like a, a flu vaccine, You're basically just going to halve the rate of symptomatic infections in healthy adults. So let's say, for the sake of argument, because there is a debate over what percentage is symptomatic and what percentage is asymptomatic, let's say 80% of infections are asymptomatic. Uh, An effective vaccine uh, uh, with 50%, which is 50% effective, will actually just push. The rate of asymptomatic infection from 80 to 90% in healthy adults. So, uh, my contention is for a vaccine to work, it needs to stop human to human transmission of the virus. That isn't even being tested as a primary endpoint. And and if you could stop that, then that would change the science behind the so called science behind lockdown. Or a vaccine is to stop the 1% dying and being hospitalized from coronavirus. And of course, this isn't being tested. Uh, in, or predominantly, this is being tested in in healthy adults. And as we know from flu vaccines, uh, they work uh, best in healthy adults. And surprise, surprise, they work less effective in old people with comorbidities that already have impaired immune systems. So neither of those two boxes, will it stop human to human transmission in the 99%? Will it stop people being dying and being hospitalised in the 1%, neither of those boxes are being ticked by these vaccines. So my contention is that these basically are dud vaccines. The government's investing billions in these vaccines. Uh, and They're basically going to be, OK, they might have some use, but they don't solve, if, if they're the answer, I don't know what the question is, because they won't actually get us out of this doom loop of, of, of lockdowns.
1: But apart from that, it sounds like you're all for them. <laughs> Have you seen the story today about the vaccine Tsar Kate Bingham? No. So this is a story that broke in the Times, Sunday Times. Vaccine task force head Kate Bingham shared UK plans with private firms. So this is a lady who's a venture capitalist married to a Tory minister and gave um, financiers in a private conference a list of medicines that the government's monitoring.
2: Right, yeah.
1: I just wonder whether you might be interested in that.
2: I mean, yeah, up until a month ago, when the vaccine companies published their trial protocols, everybody was under the assumption that they were developing vaccines that might stop human-to-human transmission or stop the 1% being hospitalised and dying. It was only when they published their trial protocols uh, uh, that that a few people like me actually bothered to read the two hundred page documents, that you then actually worked out that actually these vaccines aren't even being designed to do what we might think they would do.
1: But they'll they'll be they'll be profitable for the companies that are making them, though.
2: Yes, they would be. Yeah, and, and that's why you know we have some shorts in 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 this um, in this area. But you know, we we even though we think these are dead vaccines. You know, we're not sure now the 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 vaccine companies that might get a vaccine approved because they could still make a lot of money out of a dud vaccine. Um, yeah, have you have
1: you followed the uh, the case of uh, Dr. Reiner Fulmich? Uh,
2: uh, I think I have, but you'll 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 fill the listeners in on on that in more detail. I suspect. Well,
1: just 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 a, this is a, a German gentleman lawyer who's. I don't know. I'm not entirely sure exactly who is suing, but I think he's suing the World Health Organization uh, and Et Al for basically. The long story short is that his take, and which which I, as far as I can see, I I agree with, is that this is not a coronavirus pandemic. This is a PCR test pandemic.
2: Yeah, a case of demit. Yeah, mm. uh, but you know, even even uh, I mean Hancock, for example. He didn't even appear to know what a false positive test rate was or what it was for the PCR test. And if you have a false positive rate, which is 1%, and wild prevalence was 0.1%, then you would have 10 times as many false positives as real positives. And he doesn't seem to know what the vaccines are designed to do. Uh, and and you you think how can he not know this? Is it ignorance or expediency? Either, in either case, it, it's, not, it's not good, is it? If,
1: if you had a magic wand and you could basically turn things back to a, a normal democratic free market system, what, what, how would you affect that? What would you do? If you had godlike powers to change what, the current insanity that's sweeping the West?
2: Well, uh, I think I think one of the problems that, that we we have is we have monolithic institutions. That basically there is there is um, there's, there's there's this group of advisors to the government who are put on a pedestal as as these experts, which they you know, frankly, they're clearly not. I mean, you know, we we, we can all we've all got our favorite epidemiologists. Um, uh, uh, but obviously these guys on SAGE, um, they all seem to be mathematicians rather than epidemiologists. They don't, or anybody that goes into any line of work saying that they have uh, a a monopoly on the truth and there's no other arguments, uh, 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 that should ring alarm bells and and red flags to start with. Um, So the problem I think has been just a lack of recognition of pluralism in science and epidemiologist epidemiology to start with and that i think is a problem throughout our society and education educational system and you know i think the other day jonathan sumption called it intolerant conformism that that essentially we're all being told that you know, there is just no debate over this and that uh, we should basically uh, listen to what the experts who may or may not be experts are telling us and not, and not question it. So rather than, it's a fairly long-winded way of answering your question, Tim, but the risk is always somebody that claims that they are the one expert with a monopoly on the truth and that everybody else should follow them and therefore when you ask me what what would i do um that, that that's part of the problem i think because nobody has a nobody has a, a monopoly on the truth what 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 i would what but but obviously the most important thing is the objective truth and i think i think in general it seems to me that western society isn't that bothered about objective truths anymore it's all about cultural relativism relativism um, and and this idea that people's identity, race, gender, religion, whatever, means that we should just expect everybody to have their own little subjective truth. And, you know, it's their feelings that count rather than the, than the truth. And I think, you know, that lack of respect for, for objective truth and frankly, the lack of willingness and ambition, for people to test what their thoughts are on a subject rigorously through peer review and feedback is probably what got us into this problem in the first place. It
0: seems strange that, very strange, that in the world of fund management, in the world of finance that we inhabit, we know that when you're wrong, you're proven wrong by the markets not doing what you expect, and we respect that. Yeah. But it seems like Imperial College were wrong with their model but yet they're still listening to them. And and yeah. that does not
1: well, Neil make... Neil Ferguson still gets airtime, which I find completely objectionable. And that doesn't make any sense at all.
2: If Neil Ferguson was a hedge fund manager, he'd be out of business yeah, in a week. exactly. And I, and I think that that is why, um, or, or that, that is how, you know, our industry basically, you know, if, if you're consistently wrong and if you don't discover the truth, you don't work in the industry. Or, or, or sorry, you could work at the industry in, in some sort of big organisation where you can hide. But if you, you know, if, if you're, if you're sort of, um, yeah, if you've got your own company and or or, or you know, you've got your, you're the person who the the performance is reliant on. If you if you don't seek the truth and you don't test your assumptions rigorously, then you don't survive, and and that is something as as a as a fund manager that you observe in other institutions in the UK and that just doesn't go on that's just and that's how these that's frankly why our institutions are so mediocre
0: his 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 salary or the payments to imperial college for whatever they're getting should be tied to the accuracy of his model completely
2: yeah but i think as a number of people have pointed out imperial college have stopped i mean they, they weren't very good at analyzing what exactly we were facing in coronavirus they, they you know they were given the impression that it was a second spanish flu which you know that seems to have been subtly sort of dropped and then you know they, uh, even imperial college are now not even claiming it's a second spanish clue but remember that was the original narrative then obviously they 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 put in these classic rubbish in rubbish out models which, frankly anybody with any experience of finance will recognize that that you know a model is only as good as its assumptions and, and be wary of experts with spurious uh, ex, and a spurious degree of accuracy in their models and price targets without even understanding the assumptions that are, that are going into them but then imperial college seems to have gone on and, and you know, they actually seems to have decided that it's their job to to recommend policy responses as well. Uh, it's a little bit like a a stock uh, analyst recommending that the share price should go up or down, rather than uh, actually analysing the fundamentals of the company or, or telling, well, Apple not
0: what, the job. telling Apple what what, sh- telling Apple what what phones they should sell and how they should do it, basically. Uh,
2: absolutely. It's just- That's absolutely right. It's
0: crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And I could forgive the government in the early days for overreacting because when you don't know when something's new. And I did think into March, we we obviously had some information at that point. We were being told we didn't have any information, but we did from other countries. Of course we did. But overreacting again, which seems to be the case, the government is saying that if we don't do anything, there's going to be 4,000 deaths per day. But then that's going to be justified by the fact that we've had a lockdown that's going to prevent it, which would mean that we wouldn't have it. So they're kind of writing their own history, if you like. If we did nothing and there yeah. wasn't 4,000 deaths, we we can't prove the counterfactual, which is even more frustrating, Correct. which is why I don't want to wa- watch Correct. the media either. And I share your 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 anger.
2: Well, there's lots of arguments in society nowadays, and we don't have to go into them, That. But- that we need to do more about this and what, whatever we do, we won't be doing enough to please the people that make those arguments. And that is obviously the same argument that is being used uh, for lockdown measures, that uh, if infections uh, don't go down, and obviously there's a there's a separate debate about whether these infections are actually leading to hospitalizations or deaths or whether they're just cases, but you can bet the bottom dollar that if infections don't go down over the next month, it's because we haven't done enough. We haven't done enough lockdown. We didn't do it early enough. We didn't go big enough. And frankly, uh, you know, lockdown should, should in, for some people, just, you know, last until the last case of COVID is, is completely eliminated from the earth. Uh, and that, unfortunately, is obviously a complete lack of, lack of any perspective. But going back to, to March and April... I mean, even giving the government the benefit of the doubt that they, they were sort of ignoring the outbreaks of the Diamond Princess and the, the Theodore Roosevelt and the, and the Charles de Gaulle, where they could understand that it wouldn't affect everybody in the population and there were a high degree of asymptomatic uh, infections. Let, let's just give the government the benefit of the doubt and say the first lockdown was prudent. Going into April and, and May, my thoughts were, well, okay, you know, we've had this virus, but you know, surely the government knows the truth now. that it's, you know, let's just shield the one percent and let the ninety-nine percent get on with their lives. But then they didn't accept that; they just doubled down on it. They, 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 they were in this lockdown hole of their own making, and they just kept digging. Um, and and that was what. Surprised me because I thought, in you know, having positioned from a from an investment point of view, very well for the for the chaos that we saw in 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 March, I was thinking this is going to be a classic V-shaped recovery, a classic um, mean reversion trade in Q2, uh, uh, and that. Um, you know, that if ever we were going to have a cyclical rally or, or value rotation, it was going to happen in Q2 because that's when the government would realize that coronavirus wasn't the second Spanish flu, we'd get back to normal, and um, obviously seasonality in terms of coronavirus would be in your favor. But then that didn't happen, and they started making us wear face masks in, in June, Um and then all of the science behind face masks was suddenly removed from the internet, and a new version of whether face masks did, had any benefit was was introduced. And then you thought, well, why are they why are they doubling down on this? And then of course we come round to to September. Uh, we've got the massive increases in PCR testing, with uh, the resultant problems on that, and and. Uh, just, it seems obvious to me when, it, well, if, you, if at the Olympics, an athlete when they're tested for drugs, they give two samples because of this problem with false positives. they surely you could have the same problem in coronavirus. But no, uh, you know that seems to be a concept that is too di- di- difficult. But what, going back to it, when, when we, when, when obviously in September they started all this mass testing of of, of P- pillar two testing using PCR and then you're obviously going into flu season i just thought we're just going to go into second lockdown and double dip here and i think i think that's inevitably what europe's going into whether us goes into that is is pretty dependent on the the outcome of the election on tuesday i think and 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 now i think we're in this situation where we're scratching our heads saying well If the obvious solution is that you shield the 1% and let the 99% go on with their lives, but you're telling me that that's too difficult, but I I don't really understand why. If you're going to not do that, and then how are we going to get out of this? Uh, And you're coming back and you're now saying the vaccine is the solution. Well, we know the vaccine isn't going to be the solution because it doesn't change the science behind lockdown. You're still going to have human-to-human transmission and you're still going to have the 1% dying of coronavirus. So you're going to have a vaccine and it's not going to stop the need in in the government's eyes for for lockdown. And so I just see this getting worse. I think the only reason the market hasn't collapsed already is that that people don't know the truth about what the vaccine is like to do. don't want to be short into a vaccine approval. I think a vaccine will obviously get approved in 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 Q1 uh, and and the market may rally on that news before actually it suddenly dawns on people that you're going to have vaccines available but you're still going to be locked down and i think that could be the straw that breaks the camel's back that could be the final realization that there is no there is no end
1: Sorry, I appreciate that your your field is primarily, if not exclusively, equity based. Yeah. But do you have an opinion, a view about the sustainability of uh, the bond market, the global government debt markets, in the light of how much, in the light of how much the lockdown is going to cost?
2: Yeah, I mean, um, well, you know, there's there's a, there's a number of things. Uh, at the moment, that are that are obviously being imperiled, um, we've got the 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 obviously the the mortality rates amongst people from non-coronavirus issues. We've got the economy dying, and we've got money dying, um, because at the moment, obviously there are there there are basically three ways to pay for this: one, less public spending. Uh, two more taxes or three print more money. And and we're choosing the the probably the least bad option at the moment, which is to print more money. Um, but obviously that would be ab- absolutely unnecessary if we had the right policy response to the virus in the first place. And the problem I think with the with the bond market is that it can be rigged by the central banks. Um, the, 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 the central banks uh, obviously, own a vast proportion of the sovereign bond market already, and will probably continue to own even more of it. So, I don't think you're going to get this uh, big sell-off in government bonds. But what you will get is the government, uh, the central banks owning more and more uh, sovereign debt, and 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 money become. Less trusted as uh, uh, as a store of wealth, and although of course that is in theory good for asset prices, because um, you know if a pound is now worth fifty p, um, you know most asset prices will retain more of their value and therefore go up in in, in price in nominal terms, if not real. In nominal terms there is a difference between that and wealth creation. Mm.
1: Do you have a view on precious metals?
2: Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm, um, you know, the last two things that I, the last two stocks I bought on Friday or added to were, were Smith and Wesson and uh polyus gold <laughs> <laughs> guns and gold. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think, you know, in, I think if, um, yeah, yeah. Particularly looking at the U.S. presidential race, um, you know, if it's close and contested, um, or if uh, the Democrats come in on a ticket to, to 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 spend a lot of money, I think you'll get um, a weak dollar and and gold going up. But I think one of the problems in the market at the moment is. Um, yeah, you know, we've got a situation similar to what we saw in March, where frankly, um, everything yeah, you know, it's a little bit about positioning at the moment. People are selling what they've got, which is why you know, gold in theory should be doing better. But obviously, it's 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 well owned, and you're generally, I think, getting a little bit of a degrossing of the of people's positioning at the moment. Um,
1: but this this is this is history repeating itself from 2008 because gold as i recall sold off before it rallied because it was a store of liquidity and it was the it's like an atm people can go to it and cash in and and and, and pay for their margin uh, losses elsewhere
2: absolutely and i think you know one of the, one i think i mean we have a very similar portfolio at the moment to what we had in march but one of the things which is noticeable at the moment is that the 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 stocks like you know the 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 obvious play stocks that are going to be hurt from COVID like the airlines have actually been pretty resilient this week mm. and I think that's because there's just this hope out there for the vaccine and no one really wants to be short airlines into the announcement of a vaccine but obviously you know when the, when and if the vaccines get approved and people realize um, it doesn't stop human to human transmission and lockdowns are going to continue I think that's probably when the Airline industry in total is at risk from total insolvency. Mm.
0: So, looking at the vaccine stocks or the the, the tech stocks, mm. well, let's look at the tech stocks in general. Do you think that yep. they? You, you were you were quite early on the trend of say Zoom um, in March due to your yep. research. Do you think that mm. this is now all priced to perfection and the tech sector? Which has been the standout area compared to the mm. core stocks? Do you think that's overvalued, or do you think because of the lockdowns that will continue and mm. we never seem to be able to get out of this mess, they will remain um, in upward trends?
2: I think the latter. I, I would been I was a lot more sympathetic to the mean <laughs> reversion trade in in April May and, and positioned accordingly. Um, and you remember we had a you know six weeks of a value rotation until until the so-called second wave, which was in fact the first regional wave, happened in the, in, the, in the US. But now, you know, if you come to the and I was I was really hopeful in in April May we were just going to get back to a, some kind of normalisation. I think that the problem is that you have to now position portfolios for ongoing policy error. If you and I were running the country, it might be different, but that's not going to happen. Um, we have to position for ongoing policy error, and that ongoing policy error is going to is is, is going to say, you know, for 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 whatever reason, governments have come to the conclusion that one COVID death is worth ten times more than a death from anything else in society, and they're going to basically break the bank to to eliminate. COVID or try to eliminate COVID and, uh, and, you know, that's a little bit like, you know, trying to bankrupt your com- your country to eliminate flu. Uh, it, it's just a totally unrealistic aim. Uh, uh, and it's never going to work. And given our view about the, the, the vaccine, which frankly, I can't believe more people haven't picked up on this, uh, or, or haven't realized the enormity of this story that when a vaccine's approved, you will still have to have lockdown because it doesn't stop human-to-human transmission or the 1% dying. When the truth of that comes out, there will be obviously no exit from lockdowns and this was going to go on for years. And and, and you know, a- unless you get some sense into governments and policymakers, we are going to be stuck in lockdowns for years whole industries are going to be bankrupted and we are going to sort of live this troglody, uh, existence. Um, it, it, and, and, you know, people won't go on holiday anymore. They won't, eat, they won't, you know, go out and enjoy themselves. And, and, you know, kids won't be able to sort of socialize and and the whole university experience will be totally different from what it was when, you know, when, when we were at university, and I think this is p- profoundly tragic. But unfortunately, as professional investors, we have got to position for this ongoing policy error for quite a long time. And therefore, you know, I look at or I look at where, where we're positioned at the moment. Um, uh, and, you yeah, know, there are some some yeah, obvious winners in tech like Zoom and, 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 and Amazon was- and and the video games companies and, and, and also, you know, the semiconductor stocks, you know, this needs, you know, just more, more semiconductors, more electronics. Um, but also, you know, the other things that we've played pretty well are the house builders, not only in the UK, but we've been long, a lot of us house builders as well. And they've had the same housing boom in the U S as what we have in the, in the UK. And probably it's arguably more sustainable. um, and we're also we're also long of quite a few U.S. Um, uh, paper companies, one, because they're benefiting from, you know, making the making the Amazon boxes. But two, the lumber products are going into U.S. housing. That's really well.
0: clever. How did, uh, how did you come up with that idea? I wanted to ask that as a general question. But I mean, that's that's fascinating that you would do that.
1: Well, you should just come around my house, Paul. And the amount of Amazon boxes is in, yeah, you, know, you, you can barely open the front door.
0: But now. did you think to invest in the companies that are making the boxes, which is which is a very good
2: idea? Yeah, you, you know what, people. I struggle a lot with uh, institutional fund buyers that want you to sort of uh, scientifically define how you get all of your ideas, as if there is some kind of Barry Norris algorithm <laughs> that that you can you can set up and. And work out how you get, I mean, I, th- I think I got the box idea for the fact that we've got so much Amazon packaging at my house at the moment, and we couldn't fit it all in the recycling box. And then I thought, well, surely we should be, you know, looking at some of the some of the stocks to invest in.
1: Well, it's a picks and shovels argument, isn't it? In, the, in, the, in a gold Correct. rush, you buy the shares of the people making the picks and the shovels.
2: Exactly. And what I really like about the trade as well is two things. One is it hasn't got this NASDAQ beta. Uh, and, and the stocks actually are really cheap as well. It's just like you know, the US house builders are sub ten times earnings, the paper companies are are not that much more expensive. So they're not if you believe in the if you believe that tech growth is overvalued, then you can play the same themes through 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 the through these stocks. But also, of course, all of the 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 money being printed, um, you know, you do think about real asset inflation hedges. And I think the problem is that there aren't that many real assets that you actually want to invest in. Um, So I believe that all of this stuff is inflationary, but I still believe that a large proportion of the economy is going to suffer from deflation. So it's a little bit like if we go back to the 1920s and we thought, okay, we're going to get inflation here, what do we invest in? Um, I would argue that a lot of value managers are trying to put a multiple on on um, coach and horse earnings, that mm. they're not going to be around, and, and you'll get deflation in coach and horses, whatever, however much money's printed, because it's not going to be around. So I think it's really important that when you position, or well, you look for things to hedge inflation, you also invest in business in industries that have got a future, mm. uh, and therefore that's where I like trees and lumber, because yeah, trees and gold are my two. Real asset inflation hedges, and I also think, you know, for example, normally you'd think property would be a good inflation hedge, but of course, um, you know, shopping centres are all going bust. Offices, to my mind, are now just uh, will be now seem to be on the same way as shopping centres, and you could probably make a good argument that the office is now, you, you know in in medieval Florence, for example, did the Medici's have an office? Or did they just run ran, ran their empire out of their, their own uh, palazzo, didn't they? And um, I think that's sort of where a lot of businesses are going to go now. So I think the office could be just like a...
1: It a be a, a relic of the 20th century, yeah. Exactly,
2: yeah. exactly. So you can't invest in shopping centres, you can't invest in offices, you're left with logistical companies that have got warehouse space for Amazon and other online retailers and house builders
1: do you think that the current political class can or will ever be held to account for the monstrous destruction it's wrought on the uh, the country
2: well the problem is the entire political class is complicit isn't it and because mm. and- there's
1: no functioning opposition for
2: and example. and not just yeah. in this country you think, yeah you're correct uh, and, and this is why I actually think um, Trump being re-elected is one of the few hopes that you have, because he is possibly outside of outside of sort of Sweden and Tanzania and Belarus, probably the only politician with the balls to have stood up and, and told it like it is. Um, uh, and I think if Biden gets elected, I mean the guy goes around wearing two masks. <laughs> I mean it's just like. You know, the it's kind of, you I'm sure, will have seen the um, the broker recommendations of late that that um, based on on three things. There's a famous stockbroker based in the U.S. that has said the Democrats are going to win a clean sweep. That will be really good for the U.S. economy and cyclicals because don't worry about the taxes going up, but they're going to spend a lot of money. And three, we're going to have a vaccine that is going to work. And I, I, and and I almost think that's like the worst broker recommendation of all time.
1: <laughs> because well, all three of those facts seem seem wrong to me. <laughs>
2: exactly, all three are wrong. Um, you know, uh, uh, the uh, the most plausible is maybe the Democrats do do win all three. I don't I don't see it, but if they did, it wouldn't be good for the U.S. economy. I struggle with the fact that somebody's going to tax me a pound and 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 spend it more wisely than me. Um, and that'll be good for the economy, uh, and frankly, to Mars, Biden is gonna just you know the Democrats obviously the party of the the COVID anxious, and and America at the moment is kind of avoiding a second lockdown. But if Biden gets reelected, who knows?
1: So you're you're a historian by background. The 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 dismal historical learning that I I cite at this point. So when I I didn't study history at university, I studied English, but. I do remember um, in a history lesson at school being taught about FDR and the Great Depression. And I would say most people probably buy into this myth that, you know, so the US economy, you know, we had the Great Crash of 1929, and there was a tremendous economic depression in the 30s. And then this this is the version that gets taught. FDR then gets parachuted in, sets up the New Deal and solves everything. And the only problem with that is it's a load of bollocks because the thing that lifted the US out of re- depression was the Second World War. And so I'm thinking, well, I, I, I'm not sure I want to continue this historical analog too much further now for obvious reasons.
2: I, I would have thought the great lesson of the 20th century was that governments aren't particularly good at allocating capital, otherwise, or any, or anything Soviet, else. Soviet Russia would have, been, uh, would have invented the. Uh, come up with most of the major inventions rather than the American economy.
1: Sure. It's all very depressing, isn't it? Look,
2: um, the way I look at this year is that it's been a year where you can sort the wheat out from the chaff. And this year has has, has fired me up. Um, you know, not... Uh, there've obviously been a, a load of investment opportunities and a frankly a, a fantastic environment for being a long short manager um some of that has been covid related others you know we've had a few things in the short but like wirecard and nmc that have gone gone bust and you know that's been great for our investors as well but in general you know uh, this has been a, a uh, an opportunity. This is a, this is a, a once in a lifetime event, which is an opportunity for anyone with any heroic ambition to to actually just get out there and and do something about it. And I worry. What I worry about at the moment is there are too many people in our country that um, are bought into this intolerant conformism. Uh, that are uh, just passively going along with the economy being destroyed, civil liberties and democracy being destroyed, and, and really not comprehending the just just the, the way how, uh, how history is not going to look at us in a very favourable light unless we actually do something about it.
1: Here's a question for you. Uh, do you invest in China?
2: no um, but but i have a good friend that is actually leading a uh, chinese fund manager and and he's telling me that you know china is a great place to invest now because they've got no covid the economy's come back and uh, and they're actually obviously no one wants to invest in, in europe us has got more question marks now so he's getting quite a lot of uh, inflows at the moment. I'd like to
1: see his environmental social governance uh, policy. Yeah.
2: <laughs> well exactly. I haven't yet seen an ESG fund that, that seems to have taken all of the Chinese issues into account. How do
0: you see Brexit and and Europe? You mentioned Europe and, and uh and the economy.
2: What what's your outlook? Yeah. So I mean frankly, I don't know what the point of having a deal is now because it seems to me that we get to pay billions of pounds to the EU as part of the divorce proceedings in order for the EU to be able to sell their cars to us. Uh, uh, and I just don't see the point of of any deal. Um, Let's just not pay them. Let's just trade on WTO terms. And if they want to put tariffs on our goods, we'll put tariffs on their goods. I don't see the point in having an agreement which is a, an agreement which is totally stacked in the favour of the EU, where essentially we pay them money to allow their manufacturers to export to us. I don't really understand why that should ever have been an objective of, of British, a um, of, of British foreign policy. And you know, I, for my sins, I I, um, I didn't vote for Brexit in two thousand and sixteen, um, but. I was incredibly annoyed by the fact that the will of the people and democracy wasn't, wasn't respected. And, and and therefore I actually, I actually turned more pro Brexit after the event. And, and I think what we've seen in terms of the behavior of the EU has fully confirmed why we should, should be leaving it. Um, and, um, uh, and yeah, so I mean, I, I, I frankly just just uh, just think the the other thing is that frankly the 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 impact of lockdown and COVID on the economy is so much worse than a hard Brexit ever would be that that you know you can just sort of bury hard Brexit and and, and get on with it.
1: It looks like a rounding error now, doesn't it?
2: Exactly. But I I always thought it was going to be either hard Brexit or stay in. I didn't really understand this idea that we were going to. Which is one of the reasons why, obviously, I, uh, I, um, you know, didn't did, didn't want to roll the dice in two thousand and sixteen because I always thought it would. It, it, the logical choice was hard Brexit or staying in. There was never a choice of anything other.
1: But wasn't it Trump that said you guys should just leave and say, you know, see you in court?
2: Yeah, absolutely. But but again, I mean, one of the great problems I find with 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 Boris's government. Is we all thought that he had the right libertarian instincts, and you know, Gove said in the run up to Brexit, We've had enough of experts in this country. Um, obviously, um, yeah, it was pointed out, uh, by the spin doctor Cummings that the civil service was full of groupthink, and then we have the groupthink of Sage dictating policy and Michael Gove suddenly be very, very respectful of experts and the, the 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 taking back control that we were supposed to get from leaving the EU, somehow democracy has died rather than had a renaissance because of COVID. So I don't, you know, I just, this is a government that seems to, I don't I mean, has Boris been abducted by aliens?
1: Cretinocracy is the word I would describe it as yes
2: yeah but given given the emphasis they placed on avoiding civil service group think it's extraordinary that that, 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 that that the whole government has been undermined and and you know maybe you know going back to your question the 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 incompetence of the current government uh, and let's put it out of perspective it, it wouldn't have been any better probably and in fact it probably would have been a lot worse had any other party been uh, in power at the time. But if you put that into perspective of of 1992 and Black Wednesday and how uh, the Conservative Party lost their reputation for economic competence for a generation, Mm. you do wonder where the response to COVID is going to lead, ultimately, the Conservative Party. And, of course, the opportunism of of Labour will be that they they kind of told Boris at the time he wasn't doing enough, but perhaps in a t- two years' time they'll just wash their hands of that and say, well, you know, lockdown was the wrong measure. You destroyed the economy. It's all your fault. Maybe
0: when he went into hospital, they swapped him for AI Boris, and it's not really him. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Borat. Borat. Yeah. yeah, well, Trump seems to have come out stronger and Boris... Uh, Boris, the complete opposite.
0: Just go, I know this This, this story about um, the, the packaging actually just reminded me, I just want to circle back to that for a second. Um, I remember seeing a story in Spain, I just wonder whether you'd seen it, apparently there are gangs that are going around stealing cardboard because it's beca- because right. cardboard's become such a valuable commodity. And and so yeah. that... that um, Plays into your your idea to buy the paper stocks in America. With that yeah. in mind, how you obviously ask a lot of questions before you do any any investment, and that's the key in my view about yeah. how how the, the key to everything is asking the right questions.
2: Mm, absolutely. How do you
0: know when you are wrong on something? You've asked the questions. Is it just that the stock mm. doesn't respond in the way that you expect? How do you how do you factor that into it? Yeah. it may be a timing issue.
2: Yeah, so I absolutely agree with you. Asking the right questions is by far the most important factor behind any good investor or 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 analyst of stocks, and that's why, in fact, you know, you can ask the right questions without any knowledge of the subject beforehand. So, in fact, you know, you'll often see, you know, going back to the vaccine stuff, I've. I've been incredulous about the number of so called expert biotechs that have analysts that haven't been asking the right questions. They're supposed to be the experts and they haven't been asking the questions of, well, you know, there's no point in talking about efficacy without tying that back to what the primary endpoint of the trials are. So you're absolutely right. Asking the right questions is important. In terms of investment success or failure, I look at it. To the two risks. One is, did you get the stock right or wrong? Uh, uh, and, and second is your portfolio construction. Are you diversified enough that if you get one or two stocks wrong, it doesn't blow up your entire portfolio? And are you diversified enough in terms of this factor risk? Um, uh, and I generally find, and I think it's true of most good fund managers, that if your hit rate in individual stocks is sort of, you know, 80%. But in your analysis, and that's that's you know that for every eight you get right, you get two wrong. That that is a acceptable level of um, success. And 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 you know, whilst those two are irritating and annoying, if you're properly diversified, they don't blow up the 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 portfolio. The, 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 but the longer you do this job, you realize that the, the biggest risk to put to, to, to investment success is not the stock picking or the stock analysis, but the portfolio construction and, and the fact that there are times where, where your style risk doesn't get rewarded or the way that you look at stocks and what you think is fundamental success, doesn't correlate with share price movements. And those, in my view, are by far the most difficult times that I find big being a fund manager. Because I could, I could call the stock right in terms of, you know, the the earnings being a lot better than the market thinks, but the stock sort of doesn't go up. And then, you know, I've got stocks of the short book that are still reporting crap results, but suddenly they've kind of got a beta of three to the upside. And what I generally find is that that, that were, or, or, or put it this way, given that in a long short fund, we basically what have what I call double alpha and isolate the beta so that our correlation to the market is, is very low. The problem is what happens when beta performs wh- well. And when beta performs well, you find that you have a you have a short book with a sort of beta of three, and then you have a long book where where you know the companies continue to do well, but you know, the market's just not interested because it wants to be really risk on. So I find I find that the most difficult thing to to consider consider in, in terms of risks. And these sort of beta rallies, um, when they happen, they can be you know, they can be very, very vicious. They don't tend to last very long, but, uh, you know, certainly timing them and, and, and making sure that you can, the portfolio can cope with them is, is, is extremely, um, extremely important. And, and But the other thing is, you know, you kind of, and it, if beta does well, there's one thing timing it. So you make sure that you, you, you know, you certainly try not to lose money and uh, if you can participate, but of course, your correlation of the fund goes up. It's impossible in a beta rally. It's, you, to, if you're uncorrelated, you're losing money. So that that is that is also one of the challenges in terms of the product design. In that you know, it, in those times, you cannot deliver positive returns that are uncorrelated because beta is the thing that the market wants to buy. But I mean, happily, these don't tend to last very long. And yeah, I think they 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 tend to happen. Or put it this way, if we generally had a if we had a genuine response to COVID, which was a solution, then you would get a beta rally. Um and you know that that so that that's one of the reasons why we've done so much work into researching uh the likely impact of the COVID vaccines. Given that the property market
0: could do so badly there is a an, a knock on effect on the banking world and banks haven't been doing very mm. well to say the least prior to this uh, covid mm. event um do you were they on your potential shortlists and over the past sort of couple of weeks they seem to have found some sort mm. of stability which i found quite strange really um, uh, like you were saying about the airline stocks, uh, it could be for that reason. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm now sort of turning over in my mind. What do you have any strong opinions on the banking sector, either in the UK or or in in indeed in Europe?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm not either long or short a single a single bank at the moment. And um, and when I have been, um, when I have been long. Um, it's been in uh, in in uh, a couple of Eastern European banks, OTP and Spurbank. The, 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 you know, banking in Eastern Europe is different to banking in Western Europe. These companies, well, firstly, interest rates are well above zero. Um, economic growth is generally a lot faster.
1: They've got this amazing, amazingly innovative model whereby banks make money. It's incredible.
2: Exactly. It's a different structure than in Western Europe. I find, I find, I mean, bank banks banking in Western Europe is a is a is a is a horse and coach industry. Hmm. It, it, it's just going to steadily decline and die out. Um, and but the reason I don't sure is I don't see any alpha in in the trade. Hmm. Yeah, they they are they are all doomed. Well, there's
1: also too much political risk, isn't there? Really, because they're they're like wards of the state to a greater degree than most other sectors.
2: Uh, and, you know, for the same reason, I also stopped shorting commodity companies because I found, um, you know, you could be sh- you could be shorts and banks and commodity companies and you could think you were j- you were identifying great alpha. But then you just realize they're all part of a, a great macro trade to either believe in deflation or or reflation. So in terms of portfolio construction they're not really that useful because they don't really diversify anything. So do you think technology will take
0: over the banking system? As Bill Gates, I think, said, we, we need banking, but we don't need banks.
2: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Yeah. the trouble
1: is we don't need Bill Gates as well.
2: <laughs> no, that's true. That is very true. Um, well, I mean, you know, I, I um, you see it with your own, what you use yourself in terms of uh, the financial... System and the, and the, the you know, banking is not the same. Retail banking, high street banks don't offer a particularly great service, uh, and it's not really consumer friendly. And therefore, you know, some of the more consumer friendly new financial companies, you know, like a, a Revolut, for example. I think you know. Th- that's almost got the market cap of a high street bank in the UK now, hasn't it? In its latest private equity round. Trouble with
1: The trouble with having a bank account is it's like basically paying money to be punched in the face on a daily basis.
2: Yeah. And um, yeah, one of the most extraordinary things about COVID as well, of course, has been the way in which it's been used by consumer-facing organizations just to... Um, just to not bother, not even try to provide any uh, consumer mm, service. So mm. I can't, for the life of me, work out why I shouldn't be able to speak to anybody this year. Uh, if you if you if you ring up about you know a utility or a bank, but somehow um, because of COVID, um, you know nobody can answer a phone, a bank, and I I mean it's just highlighted how useless they are. And I think you know one of one of our um, just to diverge somewhat, um, yeah, I think you're seeing a similar thing in the healthcare system in the, in the UK. Um, you might be aware of a, of a company called Babylon Health uh, in the UK that provides this uh, GP at hand service, which is basically like a, uh, a teledoctor. Mm. So, um, you know, a, a year ago, I moved to GP at hand. Rather than I, my local GP, so if if me or any of my family need to see a GP, you basically can get a consult, digital consultation, nearly always, you know, pretty immediately, uh, and they also use sort of AI for your symptoms to tell the GP at the end of the phone what you're likely to have, um, and that obviously is a it reduces the gut cost to government by something like 75% of the cost of seeing a GP in a surgery. So it's obviously great for governments. It's big, great for us as consumers, cause you can get an appointment almost immediately. Uh, but the pushback was obviously from GPs that said, well, you know, we don't want to go along with this cause we've got our surgeries and we've been around for a hundred years and
1: Sur- surgeries. What are those granddad?
2: Well, exactly. So w- what happened this year? They shut down the surgeries and refused to see the patients. So that's just massively played into Babylon's hands. And we have, I think Babylon will be uh, one of the UK's great success stories in terms of tech over the next 10 years.
1: Is it a listed company? Uh,
2: it's private, private company at the moment with a two, $2.5 billion valuation at the last um, Equity fundraising. We play it from a Swedish private equity company called VNV Global, mm. and it's about forty percent of their NAV, and it trades at a discount to NAV. Um, and um, so Babylon's got um, uh, will have revenues of run rate run rate contract revenues of, of fifty million dollars uh, a month by the end of this year the 600 million a year. So, you know, given that I'll put it on a multiple of sort of four, four and a half times sales should make 40% profit margins in, in you know, normally. Uh, you know, there are, there are there are stocks like Teledoctor in the US, which do something similar um, without the AI that, you know, trade on, you know, 30, 40 times sales. So, Long and short of it, I think Babylon comes to market as an IPO next year, probably with a you know a ten billion dollar market cap, and obviously the market is pretty much infinite. You've got the whole world out there for GP consultation, digital consultations. So as long as they don't mess it up, uh, you know, COVID has played right into their hands, and they will disrupt um, the 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 provision of healthcare Uh, um, and do it in a offer a better service for a cheaper price
1: so they're okay as long as they don't appoint matt hancock as a strategic advisor
2: (laughs) well hancock is apparently a big fan of them which is probably the only uh worrying side
0: (laughs) keeping with the theme of technology do you Mm. what's your opinion on cryptocurrencies and ai
2: Yeah, so I've never really, I've never really understood the integrity of the cryptocurrency. I mean, gold is gold has been obviously used throughout the ages as a store of value. The supply is fairly finite, although you know my top gold stock, Polyus Gold, has just hopefully found the, um, a good bit more of it. Um, but I've never really understood are uh, why you would trust the integrity of cryptocurrency in, um, compared to gold.
1: In, in the first instance, because the supply can effectively be infinite.
2: Yeah, exactly. And, and, and secondly, um, I've always been a little bit sceptical about cryptocurrency just being used for people to money launder.
0: Yeah, there there is that, but um, but you could say the same about money itself. If you saw the documentary, or not documentary, sorry, the series Narcos, you know, mm. money is people use that argument. I always think, well, money's used for money laundering, so it, it that, that there's no difference um, in that regard. Yeah. So there must be. I mean, the the thing with I, I, I'm not arguing either side. I'm I just think it seems to be a technology that the governments are going to employ and perhaps Bitcoin was just a warm-up to it, I can see why people might favour Bitcoin over paper money, because what is paper money? It's just what we accept and what the government's issue. And there there seems to be a... The only correlation between the value of money um, is the integrity and the public opinion of governments. And if the public opinion of governments declines to a sufficient level the currency will and yep. therefore cryptocurrency being decentralized as an alternative you can, you can't you can't infinitely print it you could print other versions of it but you can't you you put yourself can't just go on a computer and make more bitcoin you have there is work that needs to be mm. done in order for it to be created so there is a way to limit supply but yeah w- would somebody say look here's a Uh, you know, $10,000 equivalent of gold, here's $10,000, here's $10,000 equivalent of cryptocurrency. Which would you prefer? Mm. I think the answer to that, and obviously I want to hear what you you think, but the answer to that would be, what are the financial circumstances? Are the banks uh, bankrupt? And and, is the payment system such that you can't send money from one place to another, in which case you would be Mm. looking at a, a way to actually, you know, use something like bitcoin which is not only a currency it's a payment system or are yeah. you are you wanting to hoard and therefore gold would be something that you, that you might want to to keep but you can't you can't break a little bit off the gold bar and go and spend it at tescos it's difficult to do that although there are other solutions to that um
1: well tesco are trying their damnedest to to avoid uh, payments in cash. Yeah, anyway. this is a trend.
0: Yeah. This is and this is why I asked the question because it yeah. seems to be a very similar trend to the medical one that you mentioned, that that yeah. um, the government want to impl- impose negative interest rates as we can see, and they can't do that while cash yeah. exists because people would just take it out of the bank account. So, so it's a, so it seems that this that this is a very important area to consider.
2: Yeah. Look, I think. Um, Obviously, throughout the ages, people have been willing to accept things other than fiat currency as a medium of exchange. I think, you know, people paid each other in tulip. Yeah, tally sticks as well. Uh, 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 I'm backing. I'm backing twigs. For well, future.
0: people, people <laughs> did use tally sticks. They used to use that at the Bank of England, yeah. and and um, and yeah. leaves were used as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I, I think the, the the bullish argument for cryptocurrency. In terms of integrity of fiat currencies, obviously they are bullish for every, every asset that has got a future. Um, so, you know, we talked about um, talked about timber and trees and forestry earlier on. So i i I kind of I kind of just look at cryptocurrency as a as a debate. that I don't need to. I don't, there's so many other assets mm. that, that I understand a lot better, that I understand how I will make money out of them that I can invest in without needing to, to invest in cryptocurrency, which seems incredibly volatile. Um, I suppose
1: one argument in their favor is that they're a bit like lottery tickets. So if you put a small amount of, quote, play money, unquote, into them, then there's a possibility of an outsized return.
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think, Tim, if you've got any play money, you're probably better off putting it in the Argonaut Absolute Return Fund. (laughs)
0: Details in the show notes. Other
1: other funds
0: are available. (laughs) Just a final question, I guess, before we go to media picks. um, uh, If you had to go to the beginning of your career and give yourself a piece of advice... What would that be to your yeah. younger self, given the knowledge you have now? I mean, it seems like you're always the sort of person who, yeah. who would ask.
1: Don't, don't go into fund management. Well,
0: you seem like the sort of person who would always, who was inquisitive from a very early age, and that served you very well.
2: Yeah, uh, yeah. I think uh, the the biggest thing I've learned in the industry is not to try and copy everybody else. Um. So I've always been somebody that that thought that. Re- firstly, really enjoyed doing my own research. Um, and therefore, when you become a fund manager, you, um, you've obviously got responsibility and accountability. And the model in our industry is, you know, when you become a fund manager, you then employ a lot of other analysts that don't have your experience, maybe don't have your expertise, where you outsource responsibility to pick stocks for you. And I found that that doesn't work for me, um, that the, the, um, I, and you can, you can call this control freak, you can call it whatever you want, but I just fundamentally disagree with that prosaic fund management model where you're supposed, you're, you're, as a fund manager, you're supposed to employ a team of analysts that pick all the stocks for you. Uh, and unfortunately, the, the, the institutional world in fund management is set up in that way that you, know, you have to have this big organogram and the more people you employ, apparently that correlates to your um, success at picking stocks. My experience is that, um, that that is very time consuming and adds very little value to me. But well, that's
1: fantastic for boutiques. The fact Absolutely. that big institutions that work and act the way they do is great news for those of us that are sort of toiling in the interland.
2: Absolutely. And, and I'd also say this, look, um, fund management is a dying industry or active fund management is a dying industry. And it's a dying industry because it's been disrupted by passive. And when you can buy beta more cheaply, um, those investment managers that basically – repackage beta and try and sell it as something other than beta, they're going out of business because their products, they may call themselves active managers, but really, you know, their returns, they, they all, their returns, all all are pretty much there or thereabouts, the index return, and, and they go up and down at the same time as the, the market and the passive product. So, you know, frankly, the industry is dying. And you're seeing all these defensive mergers to cut costs because the products are crap. Um, and, and by crap, I mean aspiring to mediocrity. Yeah, uh, you know, not all of them are. You know, there are some very good products out there, but they tend to be run by people that have very strong opinions on what it is their product does uh, and how it's different to passive. But you know, 90% of funds out there basically just sell beta more expensively than passive and that's why they're dying and i chose i thought well if i just try to replicate the business model of the 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 traditional asset management company one that doesn't help me produce better returns
1: doesn't differ it doesn't differentiate your process
2: and two if i exactly and two if all I'm doing is just competing with the same products as people with bigger balance sheets and resources than me, I'm going to fail. Um, so that's the advice I'd give to anybody in the investment industry: is to do something that distinguishes you from from the pack, and and uh, uh, and you know, for, uh, and make sure that you do your own research as well.
1: But the thing I would add to that is that people underestimate the role of marketing in the development of an asset management business, because most asset management firms are, in fact, asset gathering firms.
2: Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Brilliant. So on that note, let's go to MediaPix. Barry, have you been warned about this from Tim or, or not?
2: Yes. Yeah, he did, uh, he did mention. I have to say that um, when we first went into lockdown in March and April, I almost spent two months without watching any TV at all. Uh, and that was partly because of the the... the just the, the 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 propaganda that was coming from the news and the fact that you know my my wife banned <laughs> me from from watching the news because I would just shout at the TV.
1: And um, there is a, there is a way of resolving that. And it's just throw the TV out the window.
2: Exactly, exactly. And, and 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 partly because I was using every waking hour to to swat up on 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 COVID. Um, but um, I think what it has done, and particularly the lack of new content, uh, has meant that it's been an opportunity to to, to go through the, the sort of back catalogue of classic films. Mm. Um, and uh, a film that I watched, re- again, recently and really enjoyed was uh, The Sting, uh, yes. Paul Newman and Robert uh, Redford, 1973. And, uh, you know... It, I often feel particularly in shorting when you're trying to identify frauds, it's good for the, um, uh, for the gamekeeper to know the tricks of the poachers. Um, and I thought, you know, that, that was a, that's a classic film I, 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 and, um, such a classic film that I've recently recorded a, a pastiche of the the film for my investors, um, where I explain the morality of uh, shorting and, um, that will be out this week. Fantastic. Well. Um, and in terms of books, um, you know, I uh, I recently I was going to say uh, read a book. Um, I spend most of my day reading things, so to relax, I actually prefer the audio books. Um, uh, and um, so I recently um, listened to, rather than read, uh, "To Rule the Waves" by Arthur Herman, which is a history of the Royal Navy. And it combines that it combines basically the the history that I like the most, military history and economic history. And it basically looks at how the Royal Navy has essentially been the most influential institution in the history of the world, how Britain's economic success, Britain's uh, empire, and uh, the whole success of uh, Western democracy was effectively uh, built on the success of the the royal navy and i think that's a, a, an absolutely fantastic book um it i think came out 15 years ago uh at first uh, but i've only recently uh discovered it but anybody who likes economic history and and military history um to rule the waves i think is a is a fantastic uh a fantastic book and i also think um you know given some of the the stuff that we've talked about in terms of uh, monetary finance and, and printing money, I'd recommend uh, Irvin Fisher's The Money Illusion, uh, written in 1928, and then um, Adam Ferguson's When Money Dies, written in 1975, which is a, a great account of hyperinflation in, in Nazi Germany. And, and yeah, I think one of the great head scratches of, of, of history was how could someone like Hitler have come to power given, um, you know, the German people that, that I know uh, uh, seem like fairly civilized um, people. And it's actually this year has been a fantastic uh, insight into how a dictator like Hitler could come to power. He came to power when money died and, and, and when uh, there was extremely uh, a large amount of fear uh, amongst the populace. And uh, when democracy died, and I think that that um, you know is a is a salutary lesson for 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 anybody uh, who who cares about the the future of our country. So
0: dovetailing into that, my recommendation or the book that I've just read is um, *Man's Search for Meaning*, uh, the classic tribute to the hope to hope from the the, the from the Holocaust, uh, written by Viktor Frankl, who's a doctor who was in the concentration camps and developed his uh, method of psychotherapy, I guess you'd call it, um, a new method called logotherapy. And so it's a two-part book. One, the first part is his experiences, and the second part is a kind of nutshell of what logotherapy is. And you might think it's difficult and grim reading, but it's actually not at all. It's, It's obviously part of it is, Parts of it are just truly horrific, but it's the kind of um, it's what you get from life out of it. I, it's really difficult to explain, but there is a good reason why nine million copies have been sold, and people recommend it to every member of their family to read. And I, I feel exactly the same way. And I, I think I've got to sort of thank Tim for the for the uh, for the recommendation because I've heard him talk about it a lot of, uh, you know many times in his writings and just you know, the odd quote on or tweet that he's put out, but you know, it's, it's a book that I think everybody should read and everybody should consider. And one piece of advice that comes from it that I think is, is just, you know, uh, profound is just that, um, you should live life as though you're going through it the second time round. And I think that makes that just having that thought really changes how you operate. and, And, uh, and so it's something that I want to impart onto my children. I think they should read it. And I think everybody should read it, especially when you're going through difficult times. So I think now's the perfect time to read a book like that. So, Tim, what, what's yours?
1: Well, firstly, i would endorse The Frankel because that's the most inspiring book I've ever read. And uh, the one that I read finished yesterday is a book called The Price of Panic. Uh, how the Tyranny of Experts Turned a Pandemic into a Catastrophe by Douglas wow. Axe, William M. Briggs, and J.W. Richards. And it just lays it all out. It probably won't surprise anybody in terms of the underlying story, not to anyone that's been listening to us anyway over the last few months. But uh, it's just it puts everything out in a clear, easy – it's very accessible. Um, I, I just dread what future historians are going are to write about this year.
2: Amazing. Brilliant. Well, let's hope we don't have to um, wait for that. Um, let's hope there's a there's a, there's a a, a a eureka moment amongst current policymakers.
0: All we need is an, an is an opposition that we can vote for, we've got some sense, isn't it? I mean, whoever whoever yeah. would come up with, let's end the lockdown now, we just vote for and that'll be it. But, you know, yeah. there there is some hope there. But Barry, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's It's pleasure. been an absolute pleasure. It's been so interesting. And we really hope to have you back. For people who are listening and obviously watching as well, who want to find out more about mm. you and your fund, how would they contact you? Yeah. Where are your details?
2: so uh the argonaut capital website i i'd, I'd uh, recommend you can find contact details on that and uh uh the argonautica blog as well uh you can sign up for that and um you know that that's got our regular uh views and opinions brilliant
0: and do you do twitter at all or are you too busy with everything else
2: i argonaut is on Twitter oh, right Excellent. yes that's been uh, That's been a joy this year as well.
0: Excellent. (laughs) Well, I'll put links in the show notes for everyone to find. And just once again, thank you so much, Barry. And hope to have you on again. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Barry. Thank you. Bye now. And thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. Thank you for all your support. Happy Halloween. And we'll catch you next time. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.